So it's uh, welcome to a day of meditation together. And of course, thank you for being here and a very warm welcome to everyone. And so what I'm going to do uh, every morning is actually to focus more on meditation. And then in the afternoon, Gina will focus more on uh, the cultivation of the parami, uh, the quality in terms of daily life, in terms of uh, the world, our circumstances, and living fearlessly. And so in the morning, what I want to do is more look at the parami, the quality in terms of meditation a little bit more. And so, uh, again, I don't know if uh, among any of you, uh, there are people who have never meditated before, because this is kind of rare. Maybe possibly one or two might not have been on an online retreat. But I presume most people uh, have heard the word mindfulness, and very likely most people have done mindfulness practice. And in a way, that's a little bit in terms of the meditation, uh, the theme of the practice. But of course, if you have any other practice which you find useful and helpful, of course, please do that. So what we do in terms of the meditation is really suggestion. And so the first two days will be more uh, focused on sati, mindfulness. And then the third day will be more focused on equanimity. And the last one, Friday morning, on metta, loving kindness, which also are a part of the parami, the qualities to cultivate and bring into being. So sati, this is an interesting word. We hear a lot about mindfulness in many different ways. But what I like to, to look here is kind of some little definition, what it means in terms of the practice and what it means in terms of the parami, the quality I want to look at today which are renunciation, energy, and patience. And so in a way, to see that actually sati, S-A-T-I, which is an ancient term uh, that has been translated as mindfulness, actually the first meaning is recollection. So in a way, it's kind of recollecting our intention, recollecting, remembering, that we are trying to meditate, recollecting our intention. So there is very much this idea of coming back. And I'll come back to that very quickly. Then there is also an idea of sati, when we cultivate mindfulness, there is this idea that we're going to develop an experience, an absence of confusion. So actually, it's going to help us to orient in time and place. But also, it's an enhanced presence of mind. And also, it's engaging object in the experience. And I want to come back again to that in terms of living fearlessly. But let's look a little bit at the first parami I want to look at, renunciation. So when we, if we sitting in meditation or doing walking meditation or doing lying down or standing meditation, what does it mean, renunciation? 
I mean, the first thing it means is that actually we are not doing something else. You know, it's kind of like if we decide to meditate, we really take some time out from something else. So in a way, what is it we don't do when we sit in? What is it we renounce when we sit in? Sometimes it could be renouncing looking at Netflix, or sometimes it could be renouncing possibly working too hard. So that's kind of more external. But what does it mean internally? And you could say this brings me back this renunciation to one of the aspects of sati, which is recollection, which is actually returning. So in sati, there is very much this idea of recollecting the intention and returning. And what do we return? We return to an enhanced present of mind. We return to an absence of confusion so that we can really orient in time and space. And so, in a way, what do we do when we sit in meditation? Generally, we are suggested to have uh, an object. So it could be today the breath and the body. And so we try to meditate, sitting, standing, lying down, or walking. And what we notice very quickly is that we go somewhere else. I mean, for example, when I started to meditate long ago, suddenly, you know, I was in Korea and I decided to become a nun. This was in the 80s, 70s. And then I was doing 10 hours of meditation a day. And suddenly one day, what do I notice? I notice that actually I spending my time on the cushion, daydreaming about going to a hermitage, meditating very hard, awakening and saving everybody. And that suddenly made me realize I am not meditating. I am daydreaming about meditating. And so I realized that actually this was one of my habits. So in a way, I would be sitting in meditation, being supposed to do in Korea, just asking a question, what is this? And instead, I was daydreaming about meditation and saving the world, bypassing doing the actual job. And so my job became to actually, oh, notice, absence of confusion in terms of, oh, I am again daydreaming. And then renunciation, renouncing, daydreaming, and coming back to the object, to the question. But actually, that was very hard. Because why is daydreaming? It's succulent. It's like a chocolate cake. You kind of start to have this pleasant feeling to, if I had, if I was awakened and saving everybody, would not it be nice? And then you are in really this wonderful feeling too. And so in a way, my job for many, many, many years on the cushion was actually to renounce daydreaming. And then the first thing in order to renounce daydreaming was to see, oh, I am daydreaming. Because it was so seductive. It took me some time to, hey, again, you are daydreaming. And then I would come back and then I would go away in it also. 
And then it's only much, much later on, because this is kind of a very strong mental habit I had, that finally one day, many years later, finally one day, I was sitting there. And I was kind of suddenly, I decided, that was interesting, suddenly that day, I decided I am not going, basically I decided I'm going to renounce daydreaming. It's not the way I formulated it, but that's the way what happened. Because I decided this time I am sitting on my cushion and I'm not going to go into it. So it still appeared. What was very interesting with that hour of meditation is that I could feel the if you, if I had, if I was, and I, uh, uh, I am coming back here. I am renouncing the pleasant feeling tone of that. And then again, and the whole hour, I was feeling the impetus, the impulse and coming back. In a way, renouncing again and again the whole hour to go into, get lost in that pleasant tonality. But what is very interesting is that after that hour, I have never daydreamed again, ever. And I can't even bring up if I had, if I was, there is nothing. And to me, what was so interesting was that it was such a strong habit. And then finally, in a way, having that kind of firm intention and really, in a way, renouncing, kind of saying, I renounce this. But why did I renounce it? I mean, I did not lose much because what I was daydreaming about was really weird in a way. So I did not renounce much, but it's interesting that it was so strong. But once I really was able to renounce it, poof, it was gone. So in a way, when we sit in meditation, trying to, how can I renounce? To me, this is what renunciation has two aspects that it be in daily life or in meditation. One aspect is actually this recollecting, this returning, this coming back. Another aspect is also accepting. Because in a way the renouncing is not going to work if we say, this is so bad, this is terrible, I am terrible, I must renounce it because I'm terrible then the renouncing is not going to work because you're going to give much more energy to it. But that's where sati comes in. Sati makes you see, oh, this is what's going on. So in a way, you're not, you're not confused. You can really see that's daydreaming. That's how it works. That's how it feels. And actually, it's not that helpful. And then in a way, it's kind of like you're coming back out of wisdom. So it's not kind of fighting with the thing, but not feeding it. And so I think to see that when we are a support and anchor, like the breath, the body, one aspect of it in terms of recollection, in terms of renouncing, is to see what happens when we come back. So when you come back, first, you don't feed the habit. Like I stop feeding the daydreaming habit, then I dissolve, I kind of did not lessen the power 
of the habituation, then I could bring it back to its creative functioning. Because daydreaming is just a function, the function of imagination. And then with us, it becomes an habit which actually takes us away from what is going on now, really. But the fourth thing that happens when we come back and in a way renounce a little bit those habits is that we come back to the whole moment. And this is why with sati, you have absence of confusion. You can really orient in time and place. And I think that's what really sati is about. Mindfulness is about. is actually helping ourselves to renounce, to let go, to dissolve the habits so that they can come back to their creative function, that it be mental, physical, emotional, relational habits. Then another parami which really we can cultivate in meditation, but we have to be careful about is energy. So energy is kind of like when we sit in meditation, you can sometimes be too energetic. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this as well. And then if you have too much energy, you're going to bring tension. But if you don't have enough energy, you're going, whoops, there will be like a little kind of, there won't be enough power in a way. And so the whole body, the whole mind will go a little kind of probe and a little vague. So that you have this quality of energy, but again, like renunciation, it's kind of like we have to use it skillfully. You have to cultivate it skillfully. And that's why there is this notion of effortless effort. And so in a way, it's like we're trying something, we put in effort, we need to have energy, but we need to make the difference between what I would call aspiration and expectation. Because sometimes we have energy because, yes, I'm going to do this and I'm going to get it and I'll be the best meditator or I will live fearlessly no matter what happens. And so it's not no matter what happens, is doing the best we can within the situation. So we need energy. We need to have this aspiration. We need to have this intention. As uh, Tony mentioned yesterday, we really need this intention, this energy. Sometimes it's also called enthusiasm. There is this wonderful image in a text where it says that you should come to meditation with the same enthusiasm as an hot elephant jumping into a pool. So in a way, it's kind of like to see that this is something refreshing. And so we kind of really go with that enthusiasm. But you have to be careful. You have the enthusiasm because we aspire to wisdom, to compassion. We aspire to clarity. We aspire to harmlessness, generosity. But we have to be careful of expectation. I should be like this. I should be like that. So in a way, with energy, we have to be careful in terms of what is the energy towards. 
With aspiration, it's really open-ended. With expectation, often is, I should be like that, I should not feel sleepy, I should not have thought, or I should be more calm. Or, this is a very difficult one, in meditation is, I should have no thought. And to me, meditation actually is not having no thought, but it's more about actually renouncing mental habits, but not renouncing mental functioning. Mental functioning is very important. We imagine, we plan, we reflect. This is all part of this beautiful organism. But then it becomes habituated. So in a way, what we're trying to let go of, to dissolve, is habituation. And so the energy is in a way to give a momentum to the practice so that there is more clarity, there is more brightness. But at the same time, to be careful that sometimes that it's not be too, in a sense, defined. You know, I'm going to do this to get that. But in a way, I aspire to this. I'm going toward that. So I want to bring energy, enthusiasm to what I'm doing. And then the quality which is so important in meditation, the parami, is patience. And I'm not sure if at the back here I have a calligraphy I put here just for you for this retreat this week. And it was done by a wonderful calligraphy lady in Korea. And possibly this is patience, but I am not sure. So if there is a, somebody who knows Chinese, then maybe we can discover if it's a character for patience or not, whether this was done in the 81 and I have forgotten that. So, so patience, this is a really interesting quality patience because in the practice, in the tradition I trained in at the beginning in Seoul, in Korea, there this idea about the long enduring mind that when we practice we really needed the long enduring mind but what we have to be careful is often we equate patience with resignation and that's not the idea at all but patience is actually very much, I feel, connected to sati. Because really sati is about engaging the object in the experience. And in order to do that, in a way we cannot be in a hurry. We need to be patiently with what is it, what is going on now? So you know, it's kind of like, what does it mean patience for me? I mean, for, I know for myself, when, it, when I was in Korea, patience at one level meant I could sit 10 hours a day, not all in one go. You sit for 50 minutes and you walk 10 minutes and you do this uh, 10 times and for three months with every 15 days you have a kind of slightly a day off. And so you would think, wow, this is amazing. But in a way, patience 
is basically about being in the present. It's about being with what is going on now. But it's interesting that a lot of the time we are in the future. What's going to happen? And this must happen. And if only it happened. Or we in the past. Or if only I had not done this. Or if only this has happened. Or if this or that. And in a way, you cannot have patience in the future. You cannot have patience in the past. You can only have patience in the present. You can only have patience now. And to me, in a way, I would say meditation is an exercise of patience. But when we think about patience, we often have this really strange idea that patience is really, really tough. Either it's negative because you are resigned, and etc. And it's doom laden. Or patience is like this kind of, you know, but this is going to be so tough. I mean, just to be with this is going to be so tough. I mean, really. When actually patience is just being with the breath. Each breath. There is this wonderful story uh, of a, a young man who was very keen uh, to practice in Korea and he came long ago to practice in Korea and then he does his three months meditation, started, and he think already this is really tough, you know, to sit 10 hours a day, 50 minutes at a time, if he, you know, he can just about make it. And then he learned, because it's in winter, that they're going to do this special kind of a going toward awakening week where they sometimes do this, you don't sleep. Day and night you sit. And the guy could barely do the 10 hours. And he thought, I'm going to kind of sit all day, all night. You know, I'm going to kind of, I can't. And then he goes to the teacher and he said, you know, am I going to do this? And the teacher said, oh, just one breath at a time. Don't worry about the breath in two days. Don't worry about the breath at night. Just one breath at a time. One breath at a time. And I think in a way that's what we are doing when we're sitting in meditation. Is actually having what I would call this insightful, this wise patient. Actually, you couldn't say you are an example of patience. We are just kind of just being here. Patience is really about being with what is going on. And in a way, accepting it, and in the accepting of it, in a way, transforming it. So it's not like, I think because when we talk about living fearlessly, we have this idea that we must go beyond our fear. But we're not one say that living patiently is actually living fearlessly. Because often, what are we afraid of? Often we're not afraid of something now. But a lot of the time, we are afraid of what's going to happen in two months, in six months, in two years, in whatever time. So in a way, I would say living patiently is living 
fearlessly. And then it means creatively engaging with each moment as it comes right now. And so that's why in terms of the meditation, what I would like to suggest today is breath and body if it suits you. I am very aware that with the breath, if you are asthmatic, then maybe this is not so helpful to focus on the breath. So you can always then focus on sounds. Otherwise, if you are comfortable with the breath, it's interesting to be with the breath. Most of the time we don't think of it. And then we, th we think of the breath only when we really become aware of the breath because suddenly it's, <gasps> if we run or if we are agitated or if we shock, then we become very aware of our breath. But in meditation, we know it of becoming aware of the breath. You could say it needs ordinary state. It needs nothing, nothing happening state. And then we can just feel it coming in through the nostril and coming out again. And just being with that. And that in a way is kind of like cultivating patience. Just being with one breath. Just being with the next breath. It's also living fearlessly, because actually I think being aware of the breath is being aware of our possibility in life. Because what is fear? Often fear is about being, feeling stuck, feeling limited, feeling that we can't help ourselves, that we are overwhelmed. And here we just being with the breath, realizing this is the breath of life. This is a breath I share with every living thing. This is in a way what gives me the potential, the potential to be alive, the potential to change, the potential to creatively engage, the potential to take care of myself, to take care of others. Then we can also uh, today, if we can, and already Tony mentioned it yesterday, we can be aware of the body. And I think in terms of living fiercely, this is a really important practice. Because one of the ways we experience fear is through pain in the body, is through difficulty in the body. So we can encounter difficulty, we can have certain sensations, we can have certain frightening conditions. We can have also some conditions which are really, really painful. And so in a way, the sati is very important to see that the mindfulness we cultivate is full of caring. It's a friendly mindfulness. So in a way, living fearlessly with our body, with our sensation in our body is also bringing kindliness to our relationship to this sensation. Because we can be so quickly afraid of pain, of sensation. And so in a way, can we be with this sensation? And then later on, we'll talk more about the changing nature of sensation. 
because I think this is an important part. That's what I want to really focus on tomorrow, on wisdom, on being with impermanence, and how this can be also so liberating. But today, can we be with our body in a friendly way, in a patient way, in a fearless way, with whatever sensation we experience? And of course, if, not, if we're not feeling well, taking medicine that will help us, and if we have lots of pain, of course, doing lying down meditation, so it's not so difficult. So in a way, we want to help ourselves when we experience difficult sensation. But how can mind, a caring, friendly mindfulness help us to be with sensation? Helps to see how they come, they go, how they change. And then we'll talk more later on, of course, about loving kindness, which I think is also a very important practice in terms of being with the body in a fearless way. But today, maybe just being aware of this body, just being aware of the sensation, and just being aware how they come and they go. And can we bring a friendly, patient relationship to that? So that's what I wanted to say today. Uh, Thank you for listening. And so now we're going to have a meditation. So what I would suggest first is that we stand up for a few seconds. And then we'll come back to sitting. So if we find a comfortable posture, and there again, that it be sitting, that it be standing, that it be lying down. And of course, some people might prefer walking. So whatever suits you within your condition. So finding a comfortable posture. If we are sitting, Maybe relaxing the shoulders, trying to have the back relatively upright, but not tense. Maybe with the head starting with a feeling of elongation, going a little toward the sky and then settling in the posture. With the sitting posture, we're trying to feel very stable, grounded in the body. And at the same time, very open, relatively relaxed. So now we're sitting as grounded as a mountain and also as open as an ocean. And then gently we rest our attention on the breath. If it's comfortable, we might notice the air coming through the nostril, a little cooler, and then coming out a little warmer.
anchoring in the breath of life, the potential it gives us. Coming back to this breath, to this breath we share with everyone again and again. then gently bringing our attention to our feet, experiencing sensation in our feet right now. Can we have patience with our feet? Now bringing the friendly awareness to the lower part of the legs and the knees. Any sensations coming and going? Can we be patient with our knees?
Now bringing the friendly mindfulness to the thighs, to the hips, to the pelvic area. Being aware with energy, with brightness of any sensations going, coming in that part of the body. Can we be patient with our hips? Now bringing our attention to the front of the body and the internal organs in that part of the body. Can we be aware in a friendly way, caring way, of sensations coming and going? Can we be patient? with our intestines, our hearts, our lungs.
Now bringing the friendly awareness, mindfulness to the back, the lower back, the upper back. Being aware of sensation coming and going. Maybe seeing if some sensations are lasting a little longer. Looking deeply into them seeing how they change within themselves. Can we be patient with those sensations in our back? Covering the friendly mindfulness to our arms, our hands. Can we be patient with our hands, with any sensation in those parts of the body?
Now bringing the caring attention to our shoulders, our neck. Being aware of sensation coming and going. Bringing patience to these sensations. Now bringing the caring awareness to the head, the face, the cranium, the hair, inside the head. Being aware of simple sensation of contact of the air on the cheeks, on the face. Maybe being very patient with whatever is happening in our head. Now being aware of the whole body. Can I be patient with this body, this organism? Can I live fiercelessly in this body?
Now coming back to the breath, resting in the breath. This continuous presence of potential, of possibilities, of connection with others. Meditating is being patient, moment to moment, embracing life patiently, fearlessly, moment to moment, one breath at a time.
Thank you for your sincere efforts and practice. And then we can just again for a few seconds, just stretch a little, and then we continue with the discussion. So for the discussion, uh, what we're going to do is that uh, uh, you ask uh, the comments, question, comments, all in the chat. So, uh, ah, so there is a, a question. So, why is Sati absence of confusion? I have my idea, but would like to hear more. This is, you know, time to time I take a term like Sati, which is a very important term, and then I look at all the definition. And then I look in all the Pali dictionary. I look, of, of course, at what Hanalayo, Venerable Hanayalayo has written in his encyclopedia. And then I really like that definition, this kind of absence of confusion connected to orienting in time and place. So in a way, absence of confusion, I think in term of often, a lot of the time we have a kind of a slightly confusion due to misperception, one thing, or for example, due to expectation of this is not changing or this should change. Or, but sometimes I think the confusion is in terms of that we're so locked in, so obsessed by one thing. I mean, just notice, if you kind of think about something and you don't think about anything else and you're not aware of anything else and often you're going to drop something because you're not totally attentive to the whole thing. So I think sometimes we kind of have this kind of uh, too much concentration, one could say, on one thing, which means that everything else disappears. And then in a way, that one thing might be clear and obsessive, but the rest is kind of vague. So in confusion, you could see also more like a vagueness. So you cannot see clearly. And then you cannot orient in time and place. This is uh, when we kind of sometimes we, I hope you don't, but uh, fall from the stairs. I think often that's what happened. You know, kind of you think about something else and whoops, you kind of, you know, miscalculate. And so in a way, it's interesting that notion of what confusion means. I think sometimes it's because it's opaque. Sometimes it's because we're not here. We're actually somewhere else. So I think it refers to different things. Also, in terms of uh, misperception, you think you see something, and then if you look more carefully, then you kind of see it's not what it looks like. That's what I found funny. You think, oh, this is that. Then you look. It's not that at all. And it can be in terms of relationship, in terms of many different things. So I think it's really to connect it the fact that we really hear and really kind of open to all our senses and then we're not so confused, so vague, so misperceiving, and then we can really orient in time and place. Then, uh, thank you for the meditation. In the middle, a passing thought brought up a wave of strong emotion. I was not sure what to do. I chose to try and stay with my knee, but should I have turned to that emotion? 
It depends. You see, you're sitting there and suddenly you have a thought which generally ups, there is a connection that gives rise to an emotion. You see, what is interesting is you can, like you did, stay with your knee and then what happened to the emotion? Because sometimes we stick too quickly to what happens. So in a way, if the emotion, the thought, the emotion is more prominent than the knee, then we think, oh, that's what is important. That was, is kind of lasting. That's what I have to address right now, be preoccupied with right now. But let's say you go to your knee and the emotion disappear. Then what you can see is that it was a passing thought leading to a passing emotion and you did not have to do anything with it. But you go to your knee and then the emotion is come back again and again. Then I would say, yeah, look at the thought, look at the emotion. But can you be with it in a spacious way? And then you can play a little with being with the knee, being with the emotion. Because sometimes if you pay attention to something which is a little stronger, we can make it more intense. So that's why I think, yes, it's good to be aware of what is going on. And at the same time, if it's fleeting, should I make it more important than it is? But if it comes again and again, then I need to pay attention to it. But how do I pay attention to it? And then still, time to time, looking at the knee could help with being, with the sensation, with the emotion, with the thought, in a kind of more spacious way. And then again, more orientation and less confusion. I found what you said about criticism in the context of the actual practice of meditation so helpful. It's such a strong habit for me. I see that acceptance is an antidote. Do you have any more advice? The criticism can become a long story in a session of meditation. This is this is something we have to be so careful. And that's why I talk about the difference between aspiration and expectation. And also you could nearly say between cultivation and effect of that cultivation. It's interesting, you're sitting in meditation and what's the job? You know, just to be aware of the breath, just to be aware of the body or bring patience, energy, renunciation. That's the job. That's what you need to do. But then what do we do? We can go into what I call checking mode. And so we can go sideways and we check in, oh, how is uh, me, my anchoring? How is my patience? How is my energy? How is my renunciation? And oh, that's not good enough. It should be this way. So in a way, what I think often we have to do in meditation is move back. Notice, oh, I am in checking. Not so helpful. And I come back to the cultivation itself, which has its own way and will depend on condition. Sometimes you're bright and clear, sometimes you're sleepy, sometimes you're distracted. But all this sleepiness, distraction, or brightness, it's just the condition. But within any condition, generally we can just, to the degree we can, accept what's going on and help ourselves by coming back to the object, coming back to the breath, coming back to patience. So I think to me, it's kind of in a way being aware a little bit 
of the checking and being careful of not criticizing the criticism because then you start to have the judging of the judging of the judging which is not going to be very helpful but just to see how we shifted it's interesting that shifting from i am just doing this to i am checking it and then it's kind of when we move from aspiration energy to expectation and then you generally have an abstract notion of how it should be but what is interesting your abstract notion of how it should be is generally regardless of circumstances the fact that you're not feeling well the fact that you're tired so in a way our expectation is very abstract and kind of a little out of condition when if you're really tired you will be a little sleepy that's what's going on and uh, then can you please talk more in relation to renouncing about how to shift from feeding the habit to going back to the creative function? That I think is actually the job of the meditation. Uh, we have to be careful that renouncing, letting go, is not a state. It's an action. I think we kind of often feel, oh, if only I could let go forever after, or if only I could renounce forever after. And it's true that renunciation and letting go sometime is a state which happens at one level. Suddenly you let go, suddenly you renounce, but why do you let go and do you renounce in this kind of spontaneous way? Actually because you don't grasp anymore. You don't want it anymore. You're not sucked in anymore. You're not caught anymore. But that is kind of like, often it's very brief. I mean, sometimes something can really go and not come back. And then you can rejoice in that. And then you are, oh, you, in a way, that's what I call easy renunciation. People think renunciation is it's really hard work. But I think a lot of the time we renounce because actually we don't want it anymore. Long ago, I was in a taxi in Korea and there was this guy as a driver being so amazed that a foreigner, a French person was a renunciant. He was saying, but wow, I could never do this. You renounce smoking, drinking, eating meat, going to party, dancing, singing. And I was like, I don't want to do it any of this. So for me, it was not renunciation. I was for him. He felt it was hard work. For me, it was just natural because I did not want it. So at time, renunciation is like that. You don't want it, so in a way, you renounce it, but it doesn't require any effort. But at time, of course, we are caught. And then the renouncing has to be repeated. And it's just very important that it's a gentle one. Unless, of course, if you want to do something dangerous to yourself or others, then it has to be a strict renouncing. But otherwise, in terms of meditation, it's really, ah, quote again, let's go back. Ah, quote again, let's go back. And I think that's one of the more, but this is so powerful. When we do it, we think it's nothing coming back is nothing in, because we go again. I think that's often, we think coming back is worthwhile if we always 
in the back mode means I'm always with the breath. And so we think what is more important is being with the breath. But actually what is more important is a coming back to the breath in a way, because when we come back to the breath, that's when we come back to creative functioning. And, and in time we come back, we're not feeding the habit, we dissolve its power. So in a way, that's what we have to kind of have the patience to come back again and again, to come back again and again. And not to see as a failure to come back, but as kind of a liberation to come back. Oh, I'm back. Oh, I'm back. To see that I can come back again and again. And whenever I come back, then I am back in the creative functioning. I found making the difference between mental habit and mental function helpful in allowing me to be less judgmental of thinking that arises. I think this to me is such an important thing that we don't think that this meditation is about no thought. And there is a very interesting quote uh, in the Sun tradition in which when the, the six Patricia said, no mind is to see all things without grasping. So it doesn't say no mind is having no thought. We say no mind is to see all things without grasping. And so I think to see that we, the thing is about dissolving the habit, not dissolving the functioning. And so we sit in meditation and sometimes you can have a great idea. You can have a great thought and just enjoy that great idea, that great thought until it turns into repetition. And then it goes back to habit. And then you come back to the breath, to the body. So that kind of being aware of our thought. And that's one of the very important things about sati. What is a helpful thought? What is a beneficial thought? What is a thought which is dangerous in a way? What is a thought which is harmful? So that's also part of the meditation to see kind of in a way what's going on in our mind. Please could you explain the origin of the parami? So the parami, uh, actually this is very interesting and I, I presume some of you might know that I am married uh, and live with my husband, Stephen Bachelor, who is more of a scholar than me. So because this was about the parami, then I talked with him about the parami. And so what he said about the parami, is actually, it seems to be a later commensural tradition to have the paramis because it is not mentioned as such. The quality are mentioned here and there, but as parami, they're not mentioned in the main body of the sutta. But they start to be mentioned in, in kind of later sutta, which are associated with the past life of the Buddha, and with another text, which is a commentarial text. So it's kind of a later addition. At the same time, we were wondering if actually it was kind of like, because at the same time, you have the Mahayana arise in India, and there are this idea of the six parami. So in a way, in the Theravada tradition, 
you have the 10 pyramids. In the uh, Mayanan tradition, you have the six pyramids. So then my teacher, for example, used to add one, uh, the seventh pyramid, in order to have, you know, one each day of the week. And then you see different kind of, you know, six, eight, or 10 of these pyramids. And so they seem to be <coughs> very much associated uh, with the Jakarta tales. And then you can, I mean, you know, the Buddhists, they love lists, but because it was a way to memorize more easily. And so you can see some of the paramis being also in the seven enlightenment factor or being also in this or that. So you kind of, kind of see them a little uh, in different places. Some of these objects, like uh, two of the parami are part of the Brahma Viharas, etc., etc. But yes, uh, seemingly in terms of history, uh, the parami comes from more the later commentarial tradition. That's what I found out recently. Uh, then, I am increasingly letting go of judging my meditation session as good or not so good, which feel liberating for me. Yes. To me, this is actually one stage in the practice. When we finally just sit, just meditate to meditate, and not to get something or to achieve something or to get rid of something, but actually we just sit because we are doing bhavana bringing into being the cultivation. And so, in a way, to me, this is an important stage. And it takes some time. Because in a way, at the beginning, we need to have a really kind of something to get us, in a way, on the cushion, one could say, to get us on the path. So we, yes, I'm going to do this because I want more wisdom, because I want less suffering. And so we, are, we need, in a way, to have a goal, an intention, why am I doing this? And then we realize over time, you cannot bring this to the practice in terms of, I want a specific result in a specific way, but that it's really a cultivation. And actually it's a cultivation of dissolving, I would say, the obstacle to our creative potential flourishing. And so, of course, at times, it's hard not to be this kind of oriented to specific thing person. And so, of course, sometimes we sit in meditation and we hope something special is going to happen. Or we complain something, not spe something special is not happening. But actually, yeah, it's so liberating when we just meditate for its own sake, which means just cultivation of anchoring, looking deeply and through that cultivation, cultivation mindfulness, through that cultivation of what, in a way also cultivating the paramis, the qualities. Do you have any tip on how to tell the difference between helpful and unhelpful planets? I notice this habit on my cushion and life, but I also realize it is necessary to function in life to some extent, exactly. This is one thing we also do a lot, planning. And what is interesting is actually through the mindfulness practice to realize how do we plan? Actually planning for some of us, me long ago, used to occupy a lot 
of my mental estate, you could say. A lot of my electric, electrical, neuronal uh, electricity. And I finally stopped it because you have the planning of the planning, the remembering of the planning of the planning of the planning. So, you know, it's kind of seeing what happens when I plan. Then you see you have the planning, the replanning, the remembering of the planning. And the first time I went on a long journey to teach for a few months, for a month, it was like nonstop planning. And then I started to have this stomach ache, which I had not had for a long time. And I realized the stomach ache with you to the planning of the planning, the blah, blah, blah. then I thought, what's the point? What do I need to do with this? You know, it's not worth it. And then I realized you can have really creative planning. And creative planning is planning about five times any one thing. And then leaving it, coming back to it later, a few times, and leaving it. So I would say one of the key to planning is actually knowing how to stop it. So that it doesn't have this strange energy of its own, which can actually make us very stressed. And so kind of just plan a little and then leave it. And it's kind of really there working on renunciation. Kind of like, I have planned this enough, now and leave it. And then the next day you can plan again a little bit, now you leave it. Because we have the strange idea, the more I plan, the more I will be successful. And that's not true. Because what you can notice is that actually you go on empty. You cannot go round and round in circle and you're not going anywhere. So we think the more we plan, the more we'll have a solution. Personally, I think the less you plan with interruption, calming interruption, the better you will plan. So I think it's kind of looking at how much we do it and how we do it and really bringing some space within it. I think that's so essential for our, just for the level of stress and the level of kind of for our mental health, I would say. About patience, to be patient with the body sensation will not heal the condition. So how to feel fearless? I think here we kind of have two different things. Is the fact that you have sensation and the fact that you could have a painful sensation or you could have a certain condition which is painful and fearful. I think you can have a condition which you know will pass. You have certain condition you can actually stop by taking painkiller. But then we can have condition uh, like cancer, like MS. And what is very interesting, for example, like MS, which is a condition which is affecting the whole body, which at times is quite painful and generally is degenerative. That I have a friend, who, Paul Grossman, who did an experiment, because he's a researcher in uh, this kind of thing, and he did a kind of a mindfulness course uh, with patients who had MS, and they did a two-month course, or longer possibly. And actually, he said, he was amazed that everybody stays the course because often when you do research, kind of people kind of leave halfway. Everybody did the course. 
everybody benefited from the course, continued to meditate after the course. And what was helpful, actually, he felt was loving kindness. To be really kind to yourself and to the condition. And then that remove a lot of the stress and tension around the condition. Because when we have a, a condition which is relatively uh, fearful or painful, then there is, of course, how it was before. Why can't I be like before? Or this is my fault. What I did wrong to have this? Or etc. etc. But doing actually the mindfulness and doing actually the loving kindness is kind of befriending your body, befriending the condition. And actually see, what is it I can still, still do? How can I be with this? And the people found it very helpful. So in a way, yes, it doesn't remove the condition. It generally kind of, there is a little less pain because there is a little less stress, but also you can possibly find also creative strategy in terms of what can I do with this pain? How can I be with this? So, in terms of fear, I think it's really kind of seeing what is still working, what can I still do? And of course, if it can pass to some degree. I think the best book about, in a way, uh, physical condition, dealing with the body, is by Darlene Cohen, Finding the Joy in the Heart of Pain. And she had a rheumatoid arthritis. And I think that book I found was, uh, when I read it, was really very illuminating about dealing with the mental and the physical thing of dealing with the condition. So it's becoming aware, but it's becoming aware in a really friendly way. And also kind of, you know, we cannot always meditate. So if you have a difficult condition, you might meditate in a very different way. Kind of, you know, just lounging, I don't know, by the sea or listening to music or whatever will help you to be with the condition in an easier way. Is imagination crucial in our Dharma practice? Uh, imagination, imagination has been developed by Rob Barbara into soul making practice. I think imagination is a creative function. And so some people can use it in terms of a practice, Rob did so. And I think in terms of imagination, you can go into in terms of creativity, in terms of the heart, you can bring some to meditation. I think you can do it in many different ways. So I think it's kind of a wide kind of area. Uh, and I'm going to have to stop soon. Is living fiercely about learning how to accept be with our fear in the now, in our body, rather than getting rid of the fear. Yet, yeah, surely fear is an important human experience. And for me, living fiercely can, be, can feel ungrounded and about denial. Actually, I would agree. Living fiercely means to be able to be with fear. It doesn't mean we don't have fear whatsoever. It doesn't mean that we eradicate fear. But actually living fiercely in spite of fear. So it's kind of not uh, denying fear, but it's kind of actually exploring fear. Personally, I think 
Fear is a creative functioning survival mechanism. Fear is extremely important for any organism to survive. So that is a very important thing to kind of know fear. When is it helpful to be afraid if you're in front of a cliff or when you're going to cross the road, thing of that nature. And to be fearless can be extremely dangerous. I mean, unfortunately, all these rock climbing people, some of them live long life, but unfortunately, a lot of them don't. So they are fearless, but it's a little dangerous to the organism. So for us, living fearlessly actually is being able to creatively engage with fear, but not what I would call a fear which is not useful, actually, which is damaging, which I would call the fear of the fear, or the fear in the future, or the fear of the past. So in a way, kind of, what does it mean, fear? And are we afraid because something is really dangerous or not? So I think personally, it's kind of really bringing wisdom to the fear, to being with fear. Sometimes I wonder if I should renounce renouncing and have more fun. Then I would say, mudita, appreciative joy. I think again, it's more in terms of renouncing. Why renouncing? Renouncing what is harmful to ourselves and others. So that's what we're renouncing. We're not renouncing having fun as long as it doesn't harm yourself and others. So renouncing doesn't mean to be serious. <laughs> renouncing doesn't mean you cannot drink coffee, but renouncing what is harmful to ourselves and others. Then quickly, with fear, I learned to say, hello, my fear, I know you are there and I'm here for you. Exactly. I will put the name of the book of Darlene Cohen. Then uh, Stephen, just put it up as a thread, finding a joyful life in the heart of pain. Thank you so much. As someone with MS, I found that hopeful, as I am sure it is for others here with a chronic de degenerative illness. So now I have to stop. So thank you very much for your practice, for listening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.